Hi, I'm John Marcantoni. I'm the host of the LCG Happy Hour. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it was our first original episode since November. Uh, last, last week, I posted um, a new episode of the Happy Hour, but it was actually a, a taping of Puerto Rican Nocturne. It was a dramatic reading that we did of, of our play about the Sacramento Manavilla murders, which was performed by a cast that was originally going to stage the show, um, before the pandemic occurred. However, opening night was the day that all the theaters closed. So instead of uh, getting too sad about it, although, you know, we, we had our cries, we had our angry conversations uh, denouncing this horrible bullshit that has descended upon us, but we ended up re- recouping ourselves and getting together via Zoom to record a dramatic reading of the play which was then presented at the Six Ever Word Fest, presented by Su Teatro and the Source Theater Companies in Denver, Colorado. Um, they are putting on a, a theater festival, uh, all via Zoom, but they're doing all the workshops and presenting all the plays that they had originally intended to present, uh, just via this new um, digital world we're having to live in in order to interact with one another and they were incredibly gracious uh to have us on you know it was, a, it was a really it was a really good performance got great feedback and that is available in an audio version in uh the happy hour episode four uh, so i highly recommend you check that out uh the work by the actors was phenomenal and um it's something that, that we hope to do more of um I want to actually convert all of our our books into some sort of audio format. I've been in some talks with a, a sound designer and producer about um, about making that happen. So that will be something um, we'll we'll probably talk about a lot more in future episodes. The more we the more details we get put together for it. it it's been difficult to to do new episodes hence <laughs> this is the first uh original episode we're doing since november uh, as i mentioned before um life has just been crazy it's been a whirlwind uh, had a lot of changes over the last few months and um like a lot of times um in recent years you know i wasn't sure what I should continue, how to continue, you know, doing the show or doing other projects. Um, but these last few weeks, you know, after the initial shock of of the pandemic and the quarantine, uh, which, which we're going to be mostly dedicating our episode to uh, discussing, um, after that initial shock, I, I've actually found myself to be incredibly uh, creatively engaged. <laughs> just doing a lot of projects and um i'm I'm going to touch much more on this in in a later part of the episode but i I do just want to say that um that these creative projects have uh, just kind of revived me and my my love for this you know my love for telling stories um that, that maybe I wouldn't have had if, if it wasn't for this event and for kind of this forced time away from everyone that, that I'm having. I mean, that we're all having. And um, 
that that's probably been the, the brightest spot in all of this. And it's especially been uh, due to the theater world um, that that I'm having this sort of like personal revival and why I'm, I'm making this episode. Um, it, not, not that you would know otherwise, but this is actually the third version of this episode that I'm recording. And the reason is because... It, this has just been very hard to strike a balance because like what I'm what I'm going to be talking about is a perspective that qu- quite frankly I have not heard on any other podcast and I haven't been seen in, in all the different like think pieces and, and essays that have been published about the writer experience of of this pandemic and and it's because of a very key reason, which is uh, I'm not in quarantine. I'm, in fact, an, an essential worker. You know, I, I do all of my creative stuff on the side. I don't make a living out of it. And I, uh, uh, unlike the majority of writers I know, and who, uh, the majority of the ones who are, are well-known on the national scene. Um, I'm not a teacher. I'm not in academia. So when this happened, I didn't get locked down at home. I didn't get, uh, you know, I mean, sp- spending all my time, like, you know, finishing out the school year online um, because I'm not in that world. And... I also have not been cooped up with my family because, um, you know, I've been going through a divorce um, and uh, I don't have an official custody arrangement uh, that's going to be happening in June unless something else happens that postpones it. But uh, as a result, I have not seen my kids. Being an essential worker, uh, I work for a technology company. I'm sent out on the road. I'm a field service representative. Uh, work on these things called UPSs, which um, you've probably never heard of <laughs> if you're not in the electrical field. Um, but they're essentially backup generators, and they are and they're used uh, in data centers, and they they essentially provide continuous service even in the event of a catastrophe, um, and. And even though they are, they are most used in data centers, um, pretty much every IT department in every company you can think of or organization you can think of has them. Uh, they're actually incredibly common machines for something that uh, even I myself, when I w- was interviewing for the job, had not fucking heard of them. <laughs> um, which actually is, is a very apt metaphor for uh, for what I'm going to be talking about today, um, you know, things that people completely take for granted, but are in fact vital to their day-to-day lives. That, that is what UPSs are, and uh, and and if anybody is listening to this and they know what they are, uh, they're uninterrupted power supplies is, is that's what UPS stands for. Um, and they're like, hey, why did you compare it to a backup generator? Because that's the closest thing it is. <laughs> okay, I, I fully recognize that technically speaking, that's not what they are. But that's that's the closest thing for people who don't know what the hell they are. 
um, to understand. <laughs> I'm not going to get into all the mechanics of them um, on this episode. So anyway, uh, that's what I work on. These things are in office buildings and hospitals and schools and clinics. They're in uh, businesses large and small, you know. I mean, sometimes we're in, like, not mom-and-pop places, but, you know, like retail outlets, and other times we're in skyscrapers, you know. But these things, essentially, if you're in an office building and you are, are in an office with, you know, 500 people, all of you have computers, and your Internet still runs fast, it's because of a UPS, all right, that, that's another function that it has. So be, because these are essential to infrastructure, um, I've been driving around. I've been interacting with people. I have uh, not lost track of time, <laughs> fully aware of what days uh, of the week it is. And so I've just been listening to you know, all the different podcasts I listen to because, I mean, you know, b- being on the road, you can only listen to music so much. Um, so, so I listen to a lot of podcasts and the main topic of the discussion is about how bored they are and how like they're stuck at home and they're not really doing much. And I, I just can't relate to it. And so I, I wanted to, to make this episode about those of us who are creative people, because I know you're out there. I have not interacted with many of you, but I know you're out there who are not stuck at home. You're a writer or you're you're some kind of artist who's a visual artist or actor or director or whatever, and you make your living by working for one of these essential um, positions that we now find ourselves into, you know. Um, I I do have one friend who is in uh, the medical field, and she was furloughed, however. But for the first few weeks of this, like, she was, like, my only person that I could, like, kind of reach out to, and, and she understood, like, exactly what this experience is that I'm going through uh, of being of a community and having a completely alien experience to what that community is going through. Um, because you're not unemployed and you're not stuck at home and you're not working from home. <laughs> you're going out into the world. And I think my, my impression of this whole experience, I mean, you know, I'm recording this on May 11th. Um, most places are opening up. I'm in Colorado. Uh, this state is opening up slowly but surely. Um, but like last week I was in Montana and Idaho and Utah. Uh, I was traveling all around the Rockies, uh, in in Wyoming. It's not like I just skipped over Wyoming. I drove through it. Um, and I got to see just very, very different experience, with this coronavirus and with uh, the way people were dealing with it. Um, and, I mean, I, I hate to say it because it, it's, it's, it's going to sound stereotypical um, of me to do so, but the redder the state that you're in, the less people you see with masks <laughs> and, and the less serious they take it. 
Um, and that, and that was very much my experience last week, which I'll, I'll also touch on. Um, so I know you're out there and I hope that this episode, um, in, in talking about my experience, uh, maybe you'll feel a little less alone. Um, so the, one of the reasons why this has been so hard for me to talk about, uh, because originally I I was going to, um, I was going to write it and, and every time I would try to write it, I, it just came out wrong. It, it just, it, it was usually too angry. Like there, there's a portion of this experience that's just really angry, and I'm just going to let you know that up front. Um, and I, I don't really know how to talk about this without talking about that anger. Um, which, you know, didn't last, and, you know, there, there's light at the end of that tunnel, and I'm just kind of warning you there. But uh, when... When I started in all of this, uh, I mean, at, at the beginning of, of the whole pandemic, um, you know, go, going back to when things started, you know, the, the whole uh, push to shut everything down started, you know, that week of March 13th, um, I was in Rhode Island. I was in New England. I was actually in New York the previous weekend to that. And... So I saw the increased paranoia and was aware of, like, the hoarding of food and, and uh, toiletries, particularly, and also hand sanitizers. And I was viewing it as someone who was doing the very things that you weren't supposed to be doing, such as traveling across the country. <laughs> I was in Rhode Island on a work trip. Um, it was a two-week work trip. I, I have a lot of friends in New York. So I, I just, I drove down to New York during the weekend. Um, and that was when New York was already showing signs of going to be the epicenter of all of this. Um, and I went out to some shows that weekend. Uh, and some of like my favorite comedians, uh, a, a show that, uh, Christina Hutchinson and, and Wendy Sterling hosted and, um, and Dylan Mead was there, and uh, Tracy, ah, uh, oh, fuck, I'm going to fuck up her last name, but uh, Casano, I think. Um, but yeah, this is a wonderful community. This is an amazing show. And you know, I'm, I'm in this club, uh, packed in with a bunch of people, and probably lucky I didn't, I didn't get sick. Uh, or I did get sick, and I'm asymptomatic. I have no idea. That's, that's part of the horror of this, of this time we're living in. But I had to travel cross-country the first day that there were travel restrictions. And that you started having this push for people to wear masks. And there was the talk of the stay-at-home orders um, possibly coming. And, you know, flying through O'Hare and seeing all of the, uh, all the water fountains taped over... It was very eerie. And you already had people like canceling their flights. And so it was actually like my flight, my flights back um, to Colorado from Rhode Island were, were much emptier. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, actually, I don't think anyone sat next to me. I think it was like my whole aisle was like empty on, on both flights. And um, 
everything felt very eerie. And I didn't know how to face it other than to pretend like I didn't care. Or pretend like, oh, you know, this is a big thing. You know, it's, uh, there's no reason for us to worry about this, really. It's all overblown. Which is a coping mechanism. <laughs> it's not how I actually felt. It's, it's some bullshit, stoic uh, stuff. And, and uh, I, I remember when I was in O'Hare um, uh, going to the restroom and, and just like everybody in the restroom was, was really tense and you know, nobody's talking, nobody's saying anything. And this one guy walks in and he goes, and he goes, hey man, we can still talk to each other, you know? Like, we can still laugh. Life is going on. We're still here. This isn't the time to, to separate ourselves. It's time to come together. And I really appreciated that. I appreciated hearing that in that moment. Because it felt really dire in that airport. Um, and I thanked the guy. You know, we, we shared a laugh. And it, it really helped my morale in that moment. And... When I got back, you know, I, I, it was around the time of my younger daughter's birthday. And that whole week, I was, uh, the whole week leading up to that, I was trying to judge the situation, trying to figure it out. Um, I was really depressed because the, the, you know, the play got canceled because all the theaters closed and, um, and the bars were about to close and, and it was a, a, a good friend of mine. She, she was about to lose her job because of the bars closing and she's a bartender and she's also an actress, wonderful actress. Um, and she invited me and another friend out to, uh, to have one more happy hour together. And I did it, and it, it felt like the thing that we should do, that like before everything shuts down, we need to band together and show that we're there for each other. And to me, it felt like a very communal thing uh, that was vital. And, and that I did write about. There, there is an essay out there on Medium called Dispatches from a Pandemic, much like this episode is called as well. And, um, and I thought I was going to document this, you know. I thought I was going to... Uh, that I was going to be sort of a voice in this, um, in this whole mess, describing what, you know, still having to engage with the world is like uh, during this. And, and that's what I thought was going to happen. And I also thought, well, you know, I, I have a medical background from the time I was in the military. You know, I should volunteer. I should, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I should try to see if I can work with the military again. Like, you know, maybe I can do something to, like help. And uh, just really started to feel this, um, this internal push to do more and to contribute in some kind of way. Um, 
my daughter's birthday was the following weekend, and it's actually turned out to be the last time I'd, I'd get to spend with her uh, in person. And I started thinking about, like, you know, is, is this really safe? Is it? I mean, I'd gotten all these emails from, from work talking about how we were going to be changing protocols, but that we're essential. We're essential to infrastructure. We provide power to uh, all these different businesses, and, and particularly the fact that we provide power to hospitals. So we're going to stay open. We're going to keep working. And I started feeling a little more paranoid. I started feeling a little more like, you know, am, am I putting my children in danger? Can I spread it to them? And what ended up making the choice for me was that that Monday, um, I was sent to a place called Craig, Colorado, which is in Eagle County. And before I, I went to the job, I was thinking to myself, like, Eagle County, like, why does that sound so familiar? And the reason it sounded familiar was because just a week earlier, it was around the time that, like, the bars were closing and stuff, um, a week earlier, I had gotten an email from work that was saying, if you have been in Eagle County this past weekend, you are to quarantine for the next 14 days because you were likely exposed to the coronavirus. Eagle County was the first hotspot of the coronavirus in Colorado. And there I was being sent to work there. Um, and I felt kind of like, I, I remember just like yelling out, fuck, when I realized that. Because nobody warned me. Nobody said anything. Um, it was just something that I ended up deducing. And so I was pretty scared going to that job that day, but I went anyway. Um, and... And the, the thing that struck me, because actually, like, when I got there and I, I did the job, like, they had already instituted, like, you know, six feet of distance and having a mask on. And um, they, they were being, like, very precautious already. Uh, so that, that kind of felt better. But the thing that shook me was this. Because Colorado Springs at the time is where I live. Um, like, yeah, like, the, the bars and restaurants had, had just closed. However, people were still out and about. Like, the, the stay-at-home order hadn't come into effect yet. And, or it was about to, I, I believe. But it, it still hadn't come into effect. And when I was, you know, passing through all the different cities on the Front Range, um, which include Denver, um... I saw people out and about. I saw crowds. I said, there was still lots of traffic, <laughs> you know. Uh, people were still going to work. But then I went to the mountains. And here's, here's something that I got to clarify about Eagle County. Eagle County is not one of these mountain counties um, where there are like a bunch of mining towns that are now abandoned. There, there are these, these sections of, of Colorado, in, uh, particularly in the mountains, that are destitute, poor. You know, like they, they never, they, they didn't last long enough 
to convert themselves to ski towns or they um, were too low or don't have high enough mountains or whatever, the, the towns died before they could become tourist attractions. So you, you pass by a lot of dead towns in Colorado. But that's not Eagle County. Eagle County is where Vail is. It's where, uh, I believe, Frisco is in, in Vail County. Oh, no, 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 that, that's a little further off. Um, but it's close to Frisco and Breckenridge <laughs> and not too far off from Aspen. Actually, I think Eagle County ends like right before you get to Aspen. Um, so these are rich towns. They are popular ski resorts. They're popular with celebrities and uh, billionaires and millionaires from all over the world. And in fact, the, the reason why it was the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in Colorado was because tourists from Australia and from Washington, D.C. had come into town on this one weekend. They were told to quarantine and they decided not to. And so they went out and they ended up infecting almost a thousand people over the course of a weekend. That is what, is, that is what had happened. And these towns are incredibly picturesque. Uh, the people who designed them, you know, wanted to uh, basically wanted to mimic the Swiss Alps and German Alps. And so the architecture in these places are Germanic, and they look like these cozy, quaint, um, and also very fancy uh, German mountain towns. And, you know, a lot of these places have really good Oktoberfest celebrations as a result, and a lot of really good bars. Um, but it's all Central European themed. All of it. And they're usually packed. And what you notice, because um, you take I-70 through them, I-70, even in the middle of a day, uh, during, during the, the winter and early spring, when there's still lots of snow, it, it could be in the middle of a Tuesday and there's traffic. This is all these skiers out there and snowboarders and, and people doing other winter sports. And you can see the ski lifts from the highway and they'll be filled with people. And you can see the skiers coming down the mountains from the highway. So you can see all the activity that's going on in these towns when you drive through them. And that day, as I was driving through, after being stuck, in fact, in a traffic jam in Denver, um, once I got into the mountains, the roads were clear. There was hardly anybody on the road with me. And as I passed by town after town, all I saw were empty ski lifts still going up and down the mountains. And there were no skiers. And the towns themselves were empty and already closed down. 
because this outbreak was so vicious. They were, they were doing the stay-at-home orders before the rest of Colorado were. When I went to the place that I was working, which was, in fact, a Costco, you know, and I already said, like, they had, they had implemented, you know, the six-feet rules and masks and everything already. Um, the fear on everybody's faces was palpable. And the confusion... And, you know, it was, it was also probably one of the emptiest Costco's I've ever seen. I mean, there, there were people in there, but nowhere near as much as you'd usually see at a Costco. And I did my job, and I headed back. And on the way back, I decided, you know, I'm just really curious what it looks like in downtown Denver right now. Uh, so 70 cuts through Denver. Like, you have to go through Denver to get to it. 270, in fact, from, from the south. And so uh, I took 70 all the way, um, got into 25, went, went off the downtown exit. Still lots of traffic, lots of people. And I went through downtown and just saw crowds everywhere. All these people huddled together, hanging out, laughing. It was cloudy in the mountains, but it was sunny in Denver. And people were just enjoying a relatively warm early spring day. And I couldn't reconcile what I was seeing in Denver with what I had just seen in the mountains. Because these empty streets... These dead cities that we've had over the last two months. We hadn't seen that yet. But I had seen up in those hills a preview of what was about to come. And it scared the fuck out of me. For the next two weeks, I was a mess. And I tried to combat being a mess by finding people who would still want to get together and be willing to to be around me because I just did not want to be alone. And that day that I came back from Eagle County, I called up my ex and told her, I don't know if it's really safe for me to be around the kids if I'm going into places like this. She agreed, and that was a decision that both was the right decision to make at that time and also has become regrettable, as now she's using that same reasoning to continue preventing me from seeing them. Um, Even though there's... There's guidance from the state of Colorado, uh, from the court system, that if neither parent has symptoms of COVID, you cannot prevent them from seeing the child. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's why I was saying earlier, I have to wait for this court date in June, uh, probably before I can see them. So I was alone. 
I'm not getting to quarantine with my kids and spend so much time with them and bond with them the way that all these other podcast hosts are, are doing and how all these different artistic people in my life are getting to do. And that increased the loneliness I had and also increased the fear. I've had many friends tell me uh, over the years that, like, I don't know how to be alone or I'm, I'm not good just being by myself. And for about two weeks, I totally proved them right. <laughs> um, I think I do very well by myself, in fact. But it's, it's one thing to be by yourself when you know that you're going to see people the next day. It's another thing to be by yourself when you don't know if you're going to see people the next day. Or at least, like, the people close to you. It's also a different thing being by yourself when everyone around you is in a living condition that is safe, quote-unquote. And I put quotes around that because I've had two friends who were in quarantine that got the virus. And their partners got the virus as well. Um, and that was with them staying at home. So, quote-unquote, safe. While you, which is to say me, has to go out to the world and interact with all the other essential workers. And it's an interesting thing when, um, when you go through a checkout at you know, one of these stores and if you mention to the, the clerk who's checking you out uh, that I'm an essential worker, it's amazing the change on their face. They go from kind of being half awake and, and involved in whatever emotional and mental mess that they're going through because they're having to work in such close quarters to others. And that changes to a look of relief. I've had so many people at stores and also at restaurants. And I mean, this uh, perfect example of this was last week um, when I was going through Salt Lake. The, these people, when they know that you are also an essential worker, they open up to you. I've had some very confessional things said to me by cashiers. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, I mean, that, that sounds humorous, probably, but. Uh, you know, last week I, I stopped at a taqueria um, on the way back. Um, and it was, it was one that had reopened for dining, for dining in. But I was like, no, I'm, I'm doing takeout. I'm not sitting in a fucking restaurant. Um, and the, the girl who took my order, um, I should say woman, she, she was... <laughs> I shouldn't say girl. This is very diminutive. Um, they were probably in their twenties. But uh, so the the woman who who took my order, she um, she asked me how I was doing. I was like, oh, you know, I'm I'm pretty good. I'm traveling back from Montana uh, for my job. My job sent me all over the Rockies this week. 
And she was like, oh my God, what, what, what was it like to travel between the states? Like, do you have any restrictions? Were you scared staying in a hotel? You know, and, and, I, and I told her, I was like, yeah, it actually was very disturbing to be in a hotel. It, it was uncomfortable. Um, and, and saying how, well, like in Montana, like they're not even wearing face masks. Like most people aren't. And in Idaho, nobody's wearing face masks. In Idaho, I didn't even see warnings. And, and I know this isn't for everywhere in Idaho, but I, I didn't really see warnings for COVID, you know, and you had most places were opened up. And I, I stopped at one of the few places that I saw in Idaho that um, actually was just doing takeout and was being precautious. Um, and in Montana, it was the same way. It was like most places were not being precautious and you, you saw people huddled together. And, you know, their, their restaurants are supposed to be just at 50% capacity. But if you looked at them, it's like, how the hell is that 50%? <laughs> that looks way higher. Um, so I, I told her this. And she just looks at me and she's like, yeah, we're all terrified to be here right now. We, we cannot believe that our boss is making us do dine-in service. Like, so, some of us are even talking about quitting because uh, it, it does not feel safe. I don't feel safe working here. And those are things that I would hear. And, you know, during this particular two-week span, um, when I was definitely at my worst, and uh, it, it was hearing things like that, and also seeing the progressive shutting down of stuff. Because for, for those of you who are stuck in quarantine, you might not realize it, but it, it was a it was both a very sudden process and a steady process. Like very suddenly things were different, but a lot of places tried to stay open as long as they could. Like business, business owners really pushed the envelope on how long they could stay open and what they could get away with. So the, the world didn't just completely shut down overnight. It took, I want to say like maybe a week and a half. And then you, you got to the, the state of, of things that we've been in. Um, and seeing that all shut down and hearing from people, you know, just describing how scared they were and then being alone myself and navigating the way that, that different people in, in your life are, are experiencing this. Um, and I just felt so alone. And what I couldn't bring myself to say un until much later, until I was, <laughs> until I was feeling better, um, what I couldn't bring myself to say was like, yo, I, I just want to know that the people in my life want me around. I just want to know that the people in my life want to hear from me. I want to be sought out by my friends. I want people to show that they, they care about me during this time because I am in a very literal and a figurative sense alone. And the, the thing that was really hard to describe in, in any constructive way, <laughs> uh, which I take responsibility for, that was, that was my fault, um, was... the thing that makes me feel most alone is the fact that I don't have other people in my life who are also essential workers. 
and that the community, the, 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 the community that I'm supposed to have, this artistic community, are having this shared experience that I'm on the outside looking in. Because they're all in quarantine. And what does that mean for me? And I, I took this personally and got really angry. And this is the anger that, I'm, uh, that I was referring to earlier. I got really angry feeling like, what a bunch of elitist assholes the artistic world is. Just all these elitist pieces of shit who spent their lives touting how important the arts are and how important their work is, and yet when the world is falling apart, they don't fucking matter. They get to stay home with the richest and most pampered fucking people in the world. And it just proves how worthless our work is. I mean, it doesn't save anybody's lives. It doesn't help anybody. Like, who are we? We are some elitist assholes. Or I should say they are. Because, yeah, I might be an artist, but unlike you all, I am an essential worker. I have to do this job that actually keeps the world running, unlike you bastards. And I just became super angry, super resentful. And I'll tell, I'll tell you right now, just to beat you to the punch, I know that's really the wrong way of thinking. And, but I had to process that. I had, to, I had to process through that, through that feeling of just like, why do we even do this shit? Why do we tell stories? Why do we make art? Why, but even more so, why do we act like this creative stuff is actually vital to the world? That is, quote-unquote, important. Who gives a shit if your voice matters? If that mattering doesn't actually contribute to society in a way that, say, protects it during a pandemic or keeps shit running. Does it really matter then? Why are we wasting our time on this shit? And I just became super resentful. And I was really shitty to a lot of people during this, during this period. I've, I've, I've apologized to them. You know, um, you know they, they know how bad I feel uh, about that time. But it was still shameful of me. And it was very weak-minded of me. And it was very uh, short-sighted of me. You know, and I'm I'm eternally grateful to to the people. One in particular, Amanda, who just slapped me across my face. Amanda and Andrea, the you know two women probably most important in my life, and they just like slapped some fucking sense in me for um, being a real arrogant asshole during that time. And it, and it's one of those things where where you can say like, oh, but you're going through a pandemic, you're you're dealing with uh, with this changing situation, and yeah, you're not isolated. So that's a weird thing to to deal with, you know. But then on top of it, it's like, oh, but you are finding people who are willing to hang around you. And there's a couple friends of mine who were willing to go on a hike with me, or they were willing to come over to my place and and spend a little bit of time with me. 
and and it's like oh but like you'll you'll see them oh, I, I also did a photo shoot during this like because we thought it would be so cool to take pictures in an abandoned city um and they're beautiful pictures and all but it's also it's like it's a testament to my stupidity and to my recklessness and to my selfishness to have done that you know and so I, I feel very fortunate for Amanda and Andrea they 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 uh they they got me to kind of see the error of my ways and really helped me um get back to myself so i'll always be grateful for that um what what ultimately snapped me out of this self-pitying and incredibly judgy uh, perspective on on the arts community and on just this situation and kind of got me to to see more and more of the good in all of this that there is good and also that maybe I'm taking this like way too seriously than I should be was was recognizing that if you have no control over the situation and trying to instill control drives you crazy and makes you be a dick, then letting go and allowing things to just happen and being grateful for your own health being grateful that your kids miss you, being grateful that you have these friends in your life who love you enough to like hold your hand a little bit and also love you enough to tell you you need to fucking stop and reevaluate some things. That even in a pandemic, we're not going to sugarcoat things for you. Like that, That's real love, man. That's real... Um, care and it's like you have those things and you know what else maybe the way you've been looking at the arts world is all wrong maybe the way you've been looking at these people in quarantine is all wrong because entertainment has a real social function. Entertainment is what we naturally keep going to, like these these virtual uh, dance parties, you know, that some people have put on. You know, someone playing records and blasting it outside their window so the people in their neighborhood can dance outside and do like this sort of social distance dance party. Like that, like the human spirit needs that. It might not be essential to running a country, but it's essential to our need for connection as human beings. And so as I was calming the fuck down and gaining this perspective, um... I 
I found myself drawn to what was going on in the theater world. Because the closing down of theaters, the canceling of seasons, like, you know, the the number of, of actors and and crew members on on sets, uh, whether they're film sets or whether they're um, plays, like, the, the majority of people in that business are not wealthy. Like, they, they have to be doing, like, three shows at the same time just to get by. And oftentimes, even with those three shows, they're also holding down shifts bartending or waiting or... Uh, waiting on tables or uh, working a counter somewhere. You know, these are people who hustle. They they live through the hustle. And it it was incredibly damaging to that community, just psychologically. And I saw it with with, uh, many of my theater friends. Just psychologically, just really, really crushed them. And, you know, during that two-week stint of my own meltdown, you know, I I noticed many of them were having meltdowns, too. This really just altered our lives. And then I saw them picking up the pieces again and saying, like, well, what's something we can do? Everybody's using Zoom now. Everybody's using Facebook Live, Instagram Live. They're, they're using the virtual tools at their disposal to make some comedy, make some theater, do something inventive, connect with fans, or just connect with other uh, artistic people. It was an organization, um, the Pandemic Collective, which, funny enough, have had that name since 2015. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, they're very prescient. Uh, they, they created a thing called Project Outbreak, which um, I had the great opportunity to, to be a reader for in, in selecting some of the plays and also um, acting in a couple, uh, doing voice acting. You know, it's, it's a radio play series. And... They're using it to raise money for theater people who all of their gigs got shut down. And so they're struggling to pay rent. They're struggling to buy food. You know, and here I was like, you know, shortly before just like condemning these people as being a bunch of useless fucks. It's like, no, man, you care about people who struggle. Like these people are struggling. They, they don't know how to pay the rent. All the ways that they would pay the rent before like are gone. And here they are trying to innovate and come up with a solution. Those aren't people to criticize. Those are people to praise. Those are people to look up to. And I started joining their ranks and, uh, and contributing as well. And, you know, when I did the Zoom thing with, with the cast of Puerto Rican Nocturne, practically everyone voiced just how psychologically and emotionally beneficial doing that was. That it, it, it made their week. And it gave them something to look forward to, and it was the happiest they had felt since 
all this shit had happened. And actually, one of the actresses uh, in the cast, uh, Claudia, she was recovering from coronavirus. She got coronavirus taking care of her cousin who had it. And so she got infected, and uh, I, I believe her, her little boy got infected, too. I, I think her daughter uh, escaped it. Um, but, but her and her son got it. And she was rehearsing these scenes on, on the day, on the very first day, because uh, she, she rehearsed and we, and we recorded on the same day. Um, and that was the first day in two weeks that she wasn't laid up in bed. And she's like, yeah, I'm still really weak. I still uh, can't do very much. Like I cooked a meal and, and then I had to take a nap. Um, but I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Like this, like this virus isn't going to stop me from, from performing this role. She's an incredibly admirable spirit. And, and, and doing that recording and then later editing it and uh, ma- making kind of a movie out of it. You know, there's, there's, there's music, there's voiceovers, there's all sorts of shit um, to try to, to make it more cinematic. The, the process of working on that, it made me stop feeling bad for myself. And it made me stop feeling so alone because what I recognized was that all the loneliness that I was feeling was self-imposed. I had all these people in my life who were still living, were still doing things, still connecting. They were finding hope through all of this, and they were finding community through all of this. And it was there all along. You know, I just had my head up my ass for two weeks. And I didn't see it. But once I did, honestly, it's, it's made experiencing this whole thing easier, one, but also personally fulfilling. I spent last week uh, while I was traveling writing a play. I wrote an entire play. <laughs> this is full length. It, it actually, to, to perform it would, be, it would be roughly like a two-hour show. I wrote it in six days, which is insane, but mind you. Not everybody can do that, uh, nor should everybody try that, you know. Um, but I did it. It was the most in my own body that I had felt since this started. It was the calmest and most centered and most at peace I had felt in a long time, even before this. This is the first major work that I had done in two years. And I spent a lot of this past two years um, wondering if I'd ever write another major work whether it be a book or, or be a play. Many times thought that my time as a writer was over, that that was something of the past. 
you know, regardless of how many people in my life were like, dude, I, I can't imagine you not being a writer. I can't imagine you not telling stories. Like, that's what you do. But I really questioned it. When I was in New York at the beginning of March, I had a couple conversations um, uh, with my friends Rodney and Theo Louie about how the thing that had been preventing me from writing was feeling like I had said all the things that I wanted to say. But more so that the things that I had been saying for, for all those years didn't really match with the person I am now. I'm 35. I'm going to turn 36 on June 6. And I just don't feel like the same person I was for the first 35 years. And somewhere in this past year, I changed profoundly. And it's taken me some time to catch up. And I think this pandemic... Um, kind of forced me to face that. Forced me to face just how profoundly different I feel as a person and how profoundly different I want to be in the future. Now, all of insecurities I've battled and freakouts that I've been prone to and things that I thought I really wanted before whether, you know, what I wanted from relationships or what I wanted from a job or what I wanted from, from life. It's changed. It's changed radically in the last few months. But no, no more so than, than during this. And spending the week just writing furiously, just really intensely jumping into this story, which is my first comedy. It's the first comedy I've ever written. And I've wanted to write a comedy for years, but like, like I was telling uh, Andrea last night, actually, because um, uh, she's reading over the, the first draft of it, and I was telling her, like, I didn't feel comfortable with my own humor before. You know, I, I have a very specific kind of humor, that comes from, you know, my particular upbringing and life experience. And, you know, it, it, it can be very dark humor. It can be very sarcastic humor. It can be uh, incredibly irreverent humor. Um, and even though, like, there would be humor in, in, in my stories, um, I always felt like I was kind of holding back a little bit. Like, I was trying to, like, people please, even with jokes. And... And in writing this play, I was just like, fuck it. I'm going all in. And I think it's the play that is most, or not, not just play, but, but any writing that I've done that sounds the most like me and like the way I talk to the people I'm closest to. Um, it's sarcastic and there's lots of insults. Like actually most of the humor is insults. Um, there's all sorts of like pop culture references and especially with movies. And it, it's a play that is about movies. That's kind of the, the funny thing about it. It's a play about movies. And 
even like, you know, like I've, I've written romantic things before. It can be incredibly flowery and, you know, definitely, uh, especially like in poetry, be very like, um, even over the top in, in my romanticism. But the romantic material in, in this piece, it was the first time like it felt really real and it felt really honest. You know, in, in the the story in a, in a funny way is, is about like the love between friends, like like the it's, it's friendships that from from the the connections that we have as friends with people that love develops from that, and that the love that we have for people, you know, it, it's it's passionate, but it's not like that wild abandoned passion that we have when we're young. It's instead this like very mature passion of like, I love this person and I just want to spend my time with them and I want to be there for them. And it's more focused and calm and and just mature. And those were expressions of, of romance and humor and, um, and just the way we view life that felt very much who I am now. And that was a big part of why writing this story um, really lifted me up this last week. And I feel like so proud of it. And I don't, I don't know if without this pandemic I could have uh, written it. I mean, even like a big part of the story is talking about the pandemic because it actually takes place. Well, part of the story takes place in the future. So it's like I needed COVID in order to tell this story, you know. It really makes a difference uh, in the narrative. It shapes the narrative. And I say all of this to to get to this final point. The thing that I've come to realize through all of this is the way that we designate people in society as being essential or non-essential. The importance we place upon our professions or upon the communities we're in or upon the groups that we, we assign ourselves to or are assigned to us. Just what a fiction they are. Like, yes, b- before this whole pandemic happened, you really should have appreciated the janitors and the cashiers and the people who shell food at supermarkets and work in warehouses the people who work in construction and and everybody else who maintains the infrastructure of our lives that we just take for granted. Like, you should have been appreciating them. And you should have seen them. And there's plenty of examples, just in my own interactions with people, of, of hearing how dismissive um, or derisive of those people that that we could be seeing them as uneducated or you know 
seeing factory workers is just like Trump supporters. So if you're liberal, then, you know, kind of like shitting on these working class people. Oh, but they're working class white people. They're just in these depressed towns and they're racist. And, you know, and, and it's like, well, well, those those people who you're just uh, denigrating, um, they matter to the society. And, and maybe we're we're putting some uh, artificial boundaries between us and them that is harmful and this this division that we talk about in our politics and and our society that it, it's preventing us from valuing one another and so it, yeah they're they're essential workers and the same with the medical profession for a lot of shit talking about doctors and nurses before in my life. And they were saving lives before this. They'll be saving lives after this. They mattered just as much before then. But also everybody who is in quarantine, everybody who's having to stay home or having to work from home, people who got furloughed, we're all essential too. The things that we do are essential. They matter. They help people. They save people just in ways that might not be medical. The communities and the drive to keep communities during this time, that's also part of maintaining the human spirit. It's also part of keeping a society together and running. The, the truth of, that has been exposed during this time is just how much everybody, no matter what they're doing, no matter what their profession is or what their class is, what their race is, that we're all essential. Every person in society is essential to making sure that society sustains itself and rebuilds itself. That the the human spirit doesn't care about what your profession or circumstance is. Maybe you're you are spending this time with your family. Maybe you're uh, getting sick of them because you've seen them so much. Um, maybe you're by yourself, and maybe being by yourself, as as has been the case for me, is being by yourself actually helps you be a better person. And value the people in your life more. And also value yourself more. Now all these experiences, all these disparate uh, experiences in, in this pandemic, they all matter. And it's a part of this human tapestry, this history. We're all experiencing history in this moment. And once I cleared my eyes of all of the uh, resentment and anger and bullshit, I, I've seen much more of people trying to be their best selves during this. And, and I certainly have, have been dedicated for, uh, I, I would say, about the last month 
um, after my freak out. I've been dedicated to trying to be a better person under even the weirdest, craziest circumstances to just be your best self, be a caring, kind person. But the truth also is that when this is all over, that need to be your best self and to always improve, that's still going to be there. It was also there before this. It's going to be there after. And if there's any redemption to be had for the human race, it'll be in how much people strive when there's no longer a virus, or at least one that stops society. That when these conditions we've been living through no longer exist, we spend all of our days trying to be our best selves and to let all the people that we encounter know that we see them, we appreciate them, and that they are essential. This has been the LCG Happy Hour. I hope to make another episode pretty soon, and not wait another five months to do so. Thank you for listening. I hope you stay safe, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you.